0: It's just hard to believe that our own people did this. It's a hard thing to talk about.
1: Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for joining us today. We will be discussing Chapter 18 of Saints, Volume 2, Too Late, Too Late.
1: Today, we're grateful to have with us Matt Groh, who is the Managing Director of the Church History Department. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be discussing kind of a difficult one, Matt. And so we brought in the big guns. We're going to have you talk to us about it and help us try to understand. Really, it has to be one of the most just horrific and disturbing events that are part of our history and even just Western, the U.S. history, this event that we call the massacre at Mountain Meadows or, or the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Right. Just an absolutely horrible event. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about what we now sometimes term the Fancher Wagon Train? Who are these people? Why are they coming through Utah? Is it their first time through the area? What brings them into contact with the early saints?
0: So they are primarily immigrants from Arkansas moving to California. So they are like a lot of people in Idira, uh, moving to California for new economic opportunity, a new life. They're traveling mostly as families, and they're also traveling with several hundred head of cattle, which they're taking to California
1: to sell. The wagon train itself isn't just made up of people, as you mentioned. There's also these cattle and goods, and they're making their way out west. What's their experience with the Saints?
0: Well, it, it's a really troubled time for a wagon train to be going through Utah. So we have to understand the context in which this is happening. So the story in Chapter 18 is going to focus on August and September 1857. At this time, an event that we know is the Utah War is beginning. Basically, what's happening is that the United States government has come to believe that Utah Territory is in rebellion, that the Latter-day Saints in Utah are rejecting the authority of the federal government. Right. And because of this, they are sending a federal army to Utah with a new governor. So the governor right now is Brigham Young, and he is going to be replaced by an outside governor. So there's a lot of fear among the Latter-day Saints about this army coming to Utah, And over and over again, you see in what they're saying, we're not gonna let this be Missouri again. We're not gonna let this be Illinois again. There's a sense that they're not going to be driven from Utah like they were driven from Missouri and Illinois in both instances with the active or the tacit approval of government. And so it's a troubled time in Utah. There's a lot of suspicion. There's a lot of fear among the saints. There's tremendous distrust of outside people at this moment. And so this wagon train is entering through no fault of their own. They don't have anything to do with the army coming across or anything like that. But they're entering this very, very tense situation.
2: Because previous to this, I mean, there are many people moving to California. They're moving through Utah. so. The people that are traveling, do they kind of expect to be able to purchase goods and refuel at these places?
0: Yeah, that's very common that the immigrants going through Utah to California would have this expectation that they could purchase fresh supplies and get a little bit of rest before going over the deserts uh, through Nevada to California. And, and that's something that's good for both the Saints and for these wagon trains. I mean, for the Saints, it's a real economic benefit for these people coming through, willing to pay uh, for their vegetables and their other products.
1: Let's listen to a quote here from the book that talks about the experience that the Fancher wagon train had as they tried to purchase supplies in the southern Utah area.
0: Other members of the company, meanwhile, tried to make purchases at a store in town. What happened next remains unclear. Years later, Cedar City settlers recalled that the store clerk did not have the items the emigrants needed, or that he simply refused to sell them. Some people remembered a few members of the company growing angry and threatening to help the soldiers exterminate the saints once the army arrived. Other settlers said that one man in the company claimed to have the gun that killed the prophet Joseph Smith.
1: It says there, it remains unclear. Yeah. What do we really know about what happened in Cedar City that kind of inflamed all these anger and passions?
0: Well, we don't know everything that we would want to know. One thing that helps, again, understand the context is that the saints are under orders not to sell to the outsiders coming through Utah. And again, this is this wartime atmosphere if you're going to need the goods for war for this time of tumult, you shouldn't sell to outsiders. And that's the instructions that are being given to the saints. And Cedar City is an example of, in some ways, it's it's the worst moment of tension, obviously before Mountain Meadows, between this wagon train and the sellers. But there's been kind of trouble all up and down the route. A lot of that just has to do with the saints not being willing to sell goods to them. And it also has to do with all these cattle. The immigrant company has the expectation that the cattle will be able to graze on the saints' lands. That had been the case in the past, but now there's more settlements, and there's less places for these cattle to graze. And so that just leads to tension all up and down the route. There's also some cattle who die along the way, and there's tells that this immigrant company has maybe poisoned wells and things like that. And modern evidence... Uh, now leads us to believe that the cattle had contracted a disease that was poisoning the wells. They had contracted anthrax, which is a natural substance. And this was a problem for cattle along the route at this time. And so it's this tragic kind of misunderstanding that cattle are dying and the wells are being poisoned, but certainly no one is doing this maliciously. So to the specific question about what do we know about Cedar City, we know that there's Tremendous tension. We know things are set on both sides. Exactly what is really difficult to determine because most of what we have comes from much later evidence. And it's from people, the local saints, who have reason to make this immigrant company look as if they're as bad as
1: possible. Right. So Captain Fancher, he's been through the area before. Right. It seems like he's trying to calm things down. He, right. he tries to rein in the angry men who are, yes. are, are causing a ruckus. And then we meet Isaac Haight. Mm-hmm. What was his role in the church and also in the local militia? And how did things start to get out of control?
0: Yeah, so Isaac Haight has a role both as the stake president for the church and as a major in the territorial militia. And And
2: he's the mayor of Cedar City.
0: And he's the mayor of Cedar City, right? So he's wearing all these hats. And this is pretty common for leaders back in that day. They're a civic leader. They're an ecclesiastical leader. They're a military leader. And he feels as if he has been personally insulted by some men in the Arkansas company. And it's not something that he's willing to let go.
1: So he visits with John D. Lee, which is another... I guess, famous, infamous character through this particular story. And they begin to, I guess, for lack of a better word, plot. Right. And something
0: really significant happens before Isaac Hayde actually goes to John D. Lee, and that is that he writes to his superior in the territorial militia, a man by the name of William Dame. Dame is also a state president, and he lives in Parowan, which isn't too far from Cedar City. And Hayde writes to Dame and says... We've got a problem with these immigrants. They've insulted us. They've caused trouble in the town. And William Dane meets with the local church and town leaders. And they write back to Isaac Haight. And they say, do not notice their threats. Words are but wind. They injure no one. Right? So he's saying, let it go. Let it go, Isaac Haight. But as you mentioned, Isaac Haight decides then to reject the counsel of his superior in the church militia and this council of leaders in this neighboring town. And so he begins to plot with John D. Lee for how he can get some revenge on these immigrants.
2: And we learn about John D. Lee that he has a great relationship with the local Paiutes. He taught them to farm. And so... Is this something that Isaac Haight sees as an advantage? Like, is that one of the reasons he goes to John D. Lee?
0: Oh, absolutely. So the idea is that they will use the local Paiutes to give a scare to this Arkansas company, maybe kill some of the men. But they will allow the Paiutes to do
1: their dirty work. And what happens with that? Because I think that's that's a tragic part of this story is that yeah. the Indians are essentially scapegoated yeah. Matt, maybe you can just help us understand the chronology of what's happening here. When is the first attack? How do things develop at Mount Meadows? Right. So the first attack
0: happens on the morning of September 7th. And John D. Lee and the Paiutes attack the immigrant wagons. And Isaac Hates' idea was that, The attack would happen as the immigrants were leaving Mountain Meadows. They would enter a canyon, and that would be the moment of attack. But John D. Lee and these local Paiutes attack while they're still at Mountain Meadows. So what happens then is that some men in the company are killed. Seven are killed, another 16 wounded. And the immigrants circle their wagons, fight back, and a siege begins at Mountain Meadows then on the morning of September 7th.
1: Is there a point here where the immigrants kind of realize or catch the saints, the white settlers, that they know they're involved?
0: Yeah. So what happens that is that after this initial attack on the company with John D. Lee and the Paiutes, armed Latter-day Saints tried to track down two men, two of these immigrants who had left the camp searching for lost cattle, and they thought, These two men can't be allowed to escape. They'll spread the word about what's going on. And the two men are found, and uh, one of them is shot, but the other escapes. And he's able to return to the camp at Mountain Meadows. So this is a really crucial moment because now the Baker-Fancher party know that white men are involved. This is not just Paiutes. These are the Latter Day Saints who are attacking their camp.
1: Right, this fake alibi that John D. Lee has kind of tried to cook up—it's not going to work out. Right, and
0: now the huge fear is: what happens once this wagon company gets to California? Will they bring an army now from California? And now that they have proof that the Saints are attacking wagon companies? What are the larger ramifications of this initial attack that's now gone horribly wrong in lots of ways?
2: And so how do people find out about the attack and what happens next?
0: So next is that the saints have this decision to make. What are they going to do with these men, women, and children who are under siege at Mount Meadow? Are they going to allow them to go on to California? Are they going to help them knowing that there's people who are wounded in the camp? Or are they going to do what ultimately happens? Or are they going to actually attack them more? And there's a council meeting held with Isaac Kate and William Dame and other leaders. And the feeling of the council is, again, nothing should be done to this wagon company. If anything, we should help the company. But after the council meeting... Isaac Haight pulls William Dame aside and he lets William Dame know that the Baker-Fancher party knows that Latter-day Saints were involved in the attack. And it's at that moment that William Dame decided to authorize an attack. At the same time, another thing that's happening is that before this fateful decision is made, an express rider is sent north
1: to Salt Lake City. Right. This is an important part of the story. I hope you can help us understand because the narrative among those that are often critical or dissenters kind of views is that Brigham Young must have known, or even they may say Brigham Young had to have orchestrated this. There's just no way these people could have done this without his knowledge or direction. What do we really know about this? When did Brigham know? Yeah. What did he say? Yeah. What was his involvement in this terrible tragedy? Yeah,
0: we, we have to understand how primitive communications are mm-hmm. at this period of time. There's no telegraph. There's no railroad. There's no system to get the information quickly to Brigham Young. The quickest way is you send an express rider, which basically is a guy who you tell to— Stop as little as possible, sleep as little as possible until he can get from Cedar City to Salt Lake City.
2: And it still takes three days? It
0: still takes three days. Oh, wow. Right? And he's basically riding around the clock. This is a real distance. There's another element to your question, and that is sometimes there's a real misperception about Brigham Young. And this was a perception that existed in the 1800s, and that was that Brigham Young controlled everything in Utah right? No one did anything but by Brigham's authorization. Right. The saints just obeyed Brigham all the time. I think Brigham sometimes wishes that that were the case, right? <laughs> but Brigham knew that that you just didn't control people, right? That you had to work with them and you had to lead them with persuasion and all these sorts of things. He didn't just dictate and things happen. When the express rider gets to Salt Lake, the, the rider's been about 250 miles in those three days. So Brigham tells him to go get some sleep and asks him if he's going to be able to take a message back to Cedar City. The writer says he can. Brigham writes this, in regard to immigration trains passing through our settlements, we must not interfere with them. And then he says, you must not meddle with them. The Indians we expect will do as they please, but you should try and preserve good feelings with them. Then again he says, let them go in peace. So the, the instructions from Brigham Young are really, really clear. And there have been conspiracy theories over time that, well, this letter is just a ruse, right? This is not really what's happening. But if you look at all the evidence about the letter and how things worked and the reaction once the letter gets to Cedar City, this was Brigham Young's instruction. It was not his instruction to order the massacre,
2: and the timing, if you just look at the timing that yeah. it would take for him to even understand the situation, get back to them, you know, yeah. it's its yeah, incredible. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, you know, that people have this thought that Brigham Young controlled everything, but Brigham Young had organized these council systems. And so we're hearing about these councils that are happening and the decisions that are being made in the councils. So how did that play into this?
0: Well, it is a real pattern that you see here that the councils, the local councils had the right impulses. Let them go in peace. Help them, right? There's wounded among them. Our obligation as Christians is to help. It was, though, the men in some leadership positions, like Isaac Haight, William Dame, who then choose to reject the decision of their councils. Sometimes we're asked, what can we learn from Mount Meadows? And I think that's one of the real messages. their safety in councils. There's wisdom in councils. There's inspiration in councils, and that for a leader to just reject the voice of the council—it's a perilous thing.
1: Matt, uh, sometimes I've heard people say I've heard the story of Hans Mill so many times in a church setting. Yeah. But I've never heard the story of Mountain Meadows. I had to read that somewhere else, and certainly I don't find that in a lot of Sunday school manuals. Mm-hmm. There's been lots of Ensign articles and wonderful things the church has written, but. What do you say to someone who, after reading this chapter, is just kind of looking and saying, man, this is just terrible. Why have I never heard about this before?
0: I would say it is terrible. It's, it's a real tragedy, and it's, it's difficult for a people like we are as Latter-day Saints. It's difficult to talk about the most tragic things in our history, right? Especially when our own spiritual ancestors were the perpetrators, Right. It's easy for us to tell stories where we are the ones being persecuted. Right. It's just, it's a really hard thing to say these were Latter-day Saints. So I had my son, who is now 13, read these chapters. And he said, wait a minute, was it the saints who were doing the killing? Well, yeah, let's talk about this. And so it's just hard to believe that our own people did this. Yeah. It's a hard thing to talk about. And for a long time in the church, there was just such a sense of shame about what happened at Mount Meadows, right? And of course, there's, there's still shame. But the shame at that point created a culture where it was just difficult to talk about. It. For decades after in southern Utah, there was kind of a culture of silence around what happened at Mount Meadows. To your original question, what would you say to someone who hasn't heard these things before? I would say they're, they're just so tragic. And we can hopefully learn things as a people. We learn things from really hard stories. We learn from this the importance of counsels. We learn from this the importance of being a peacemaker. We learn from this the importance of saying, like, words are wind, right? We can let offenses go without following them to the nth degree. Uh, We can learn from this the importance of honesty. There's such deceit going on with many of the things happening.
1: For those of our listeners who may not have read the chapter... yeah. This is really hard, and, you know, trying not to be overly graphic here, but what exactly happened?
0: This was really difficult for us to narrate in this chapter, uh, knowing that we want saints to be read by people of all ages, knowing that people will listen to the audiobook or read the book to their 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 13-year-olds. Right. So we didn't want to be too graphic in this chapter, but the gravity of the situation also has to be conveyed. So on September 11th, remember the siege starts on September 7th, the immigrants are weakened, more people have been shot at by this point, there's a lack of water, the immigrants are in bad shape. And it's at that point that John D. Lee rides into their camp under a white flag of truce and proposes to them a way that they can be saved. And he said, you come with us, we will put uh, the sick people in a wagon, we will allow women and children to walk together, And then to make sure that the Paiutes aren't concerned about what the men will do, we will have a militia man walk next to each of the immigrant men. And we don't know what's going through the minds of Captain Fancher and the others in the party. Certainly, they probably have many, many reasons to be deeply suspicious of this plan. They must be desperate to do it, though. But they're totally desperate. They probably
2: feel like they have have no other option. They have no option,
0: right? So they accept the plan. They go out. The militiamen have orders that they will, at a particular moment, there will be a signal given. They're supposed to turn to the man. They're walking next and and shoot him at point-blank range. The women and children, the plan is that a small group of Latter-day Saint men will work with the Paiutes uh, in killing the women and every child who's old enough to remember and tell the tale. John D. Lee rides with the sick wagon, and it's his responsibility to ensure that the people in in the sick and injured wagon are also killed. And so that's what happens. All of the immigrants are killed, roughly 120 over the course of the siege, and then most of them on this last day, with 17 children being spared. And of course, these children are just traumatized, as you can imagine. They, yeah. They'll bear the scars with them, those of them who can remember. I mean, there's there's some infants and, and things like that, but um, the others will bear the scars of their memories the rest of their lives. And of course, they'll all grow up now without parents, without kin, without the families that they had been with.
1: We'll find out more in later chapters about what happens with those who perpetrated this act. I think one of the great tragedies is that it doesn't seem like justice is served. John D. Lee is the only one who's convicted and executed. Yeah, that's right.
0: So the question of why wasn't more done against these men is a really, really complicated one. There is some church ecclesiastical discipline uh, against Isaac Haidt as well. He's removed as state president. He's going to be excommunicated from the church. There are a few other kind of actions taken. Eventually nine of the men are going to be indicted. But like I said, there's a culture of silence. We might say a conspiracy of silence among the perpetrators at Mountain Meadows. So it's difficult to bring the men to justice. And Brigham Young isn't told the truth. It takes quite a while for even the Saints' leadership in Salt Lake City to truly understand what's happened. Because when John D. Lee comes north to tell Brigham Young what's happened, his story is that the immigrants angered, the Paiutes, they, you know, they poisoned wells, all of these kinds of things, and that the Paiutes attacked them, and, and it was just an Indian action. But eventually, Brigham Young and others do come to understand the depth of Latter-day Saint involvement, and it's with Brigham Young's cooperation that charges are going to be brought against John D. Lee and, and some of the others. And Brigham, I think, would say that, he, well, and he did say this repeatedly, that he was willing to help the federal government bring some of these perpetrators to trial, But remember, he's no longer the governor. He says, I have no civil authority in the matter anymore. And a lot of Americans at the time and some of the federal officials think that's a really hollow thing for Brigham Young to say that he could have been more active. But I, I think Brigham is in a really tight spot. He doesn't have the civil authority. He knows that any publicity about Mount Meadows just is so harmful to the church that he wants to minimize that. And like you say, eventually John D. Lee is brought to trial, and and the church does suffer as a consequence after John D. Lee is executed, which happens in 1877, a few months before Brigham's own death. There's such an uproar throughout the United States about Mount Meadows that missionary work basically has to stop. We call home a lot of the missionaries throughout the United States because they basically say all anyone wants to talk about is Mount Meadows. So the harm just smears all Latter-day Saints for a long period of time.
2: Since this is such a complicated and horrific event, something that might be helpful for our readers is to look at the footnotes throughout this chapter. Mm -hmm. So the topics that we have on Mountain Meadows Massacre will really be helpful as our listeners learn more. And so, Matt, where are these resources coming from? I know it took a lot of time for this information to all come forward and for people to understand the full situation. So where are these resources coming from?
0: Uh, Great question. About 20 years ago, the church made a decision to fully investigate what happened to Mount Meadows, to put to rest any doubt or kind of the controversy surrounding Mount Meadows. And it was an amazing project. Uh, tremendous resources were used. Researchers went to dozens of historical archives. Every scrap of paper in the church archives, anywhere in church possession that dealt with Mount Meadows, was made available to the researchers. And as a result of that, a book was written by three authors Ronald Walker, Richard Trulli, and Glenn Leonard that narrates what happens at Mount Meadows. It's unflinching. In its analysis, it concludes clearly that this was the saints in southern Utah who perpetrated this crime. So if readers want more information, if they want to really delve into Mount Meadows, that's the place I would recommend.
1: And what's the name of the book?
0: The, the book is called Massacre at Mount Meadows. It was published by Oxford University Press. If you want a short synopsis, after the book was published, Richard Turley wrote an article for the Ensign that clearly lays out the chronology and what happened. And, of course, everything we've done in Saints relies on that uh, massive research project.
1: And we will include in our show notes links to the Ensign article as well as to other sources where you can learn more about Mountain Meadows Massacre if that's something you'd like to do.
0: You know, Ben, one other thing I I think it's important to know is that the church does operate a historic site at Mount Meadows that is uh, intended to commemorate, to remember the victims of the tragedy of the massacre and designed to be a, a restful, peaceful, commemorative spot. Some years ago, on the 150th anniversary of the massacre, uh, Elder Henry B. Eyring, President Iring, who was then a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, went.
1: I, I watched this just this morning to, okay. rem- to remind myself.
0: He went to, to Mountain Meadows and he spoke to the descendants of those 17 children. There's numerous descendants. And he also spoke to descendants of men like John D. Lee, who uh, were also present. So both sides of this awful tragedy, of this awful massacre President Eyring said the gospel of Jesus Christ that we espouse abhors the cold-blooded killing of men, women, and children. Indeed, it advocates peace and forgiveness. What was done here long ago by members of our church represents a terrible and inexcusable departure from Christian teaching and conduct. So I think that was a really important statement by President Eyring to go and say, this is not who we are. This was so awful. And we need to remember as disciples of Christ in our day and age to be peacemakers.
1: I'm so glad you shared that with us. And I would invite our listeners, if you are in the Intermountain region and you're passing between St. George and Salt Lake City, whether you have a young family or just you by yourself, take time sometime to stop by the historic site that is maintained there and contemplate a little about this very difficult chapter in our history paying respect to those whose lives were taken, and hopefully remembering the words of President Iring that we will never, never again have this kind of thing happen to us as a church, that we would stick to the ideals of the gospel. Thank you so much, Matt Groh, for being with us today. We appreciate you and, and all that your team does for saints and for church history.
0: Well, we're thrilled that there's so many readers out there who love church history. We're just thrilled to be a part of it.
1: You can always reach us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. You can visit our website, saints.churchofjesuschrist.org, where you can find our latest topics, videos, and more.
2: I'm Shailen Beck.
1: And I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening.